Well, welcome to The Window, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the contributing barbecue editor for Southern Living and the author of Southern Spirits, 400 Years of Drinking in the American South. And I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor at The Post and Courier. This week, we're doing the oils and fats edition of The Window, since we're talking about uh, various types of oil, like cold-pressed uh, green peanut oil and other artisanal oils. Uh, we're also going to talk about Fats Cafe, so getting the fat in there, uh, and some other f- uh, family casual restaurant brands and some of the market uh, dynamics that have been affecting them lately. And then finally, milk fat, specifically the, ton of, the kind of fat you find in raw milk, which remains something of a controversial uh, topic these days. Uh, but before we chew the fat on milk and other topics, let's talk oil. Uh, so we're happy to have as our guest today Clay Oliver of Oliver Farms, uh, which is a producer of art- artisanal oils. And Clay, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks what an honor here. to be here. Appreciate it. Well, Clay, I know you're from down in Georgia. Is it is it Pitt, Georgia? Is that right? Pitts. Pitt, Pitts, Georgia. P-I-T-T-S. And I did look it up on the map. It sounds like that's right in the middle, down south of Macon a little bit. Yeah, we're about 60 miles south of Macon. It's a very small town, about 250 people, very rural community. And is that where you're from originally? Yep, born and raised right there. And so why don't we start off talking a little bit about what it is you do, what you make. Okay. Uh, We make cold-pressed oils, seed and nut oils, most of them native to the south. Uh, We started with an idea a few years ago that we could make fuel on our farm. And through that, I got led into the food-grade oil industry and uh, learned about cold press that technique and it was I was just blown away by the flavor uh, that that we had that you don't get in processed oil so we just fell in love right off the start yeah I was going to ask you know, so I hear cold pressed I see cold pressed olive oil and other things but I have to admit I, I didn't really know what it is so can you t- what's the difference between that cold pressing versus or the more conventional way that oil is, is, is right yeah and that's that's I had no idea until I went to learn it and then like I said my eyes were open to this the commercial oils that we have and they have a place in in life, but they're processed and refined so that they're very shelf stable. Uh, they lose their flavor. Uh, they don't want them to have a flavor. They want a, a, a you know, homogenous oil, mm-hmm. vegetable oil. And the cold press technique, the temperature doesn't get above a, a high enough temperature that it affects the oil. The fats begin to break down. This leaves a clean, you know, whatever the seed and nut oil that we use, the oil tastes just like that. Now, anyone who's ever had a peanut, you might at the end, your your fingers might be a little bit greasy, but it's not like you've got a whole bottle of oil. So how, how many peanuts does it take to uh, to make a, a bottle of oil? You know, that's something I was very interested to find out, you know, what different oil contents are in these things. And we found that the peanut, the method we use, we can get about 50% of the weight is oh, oil. Wow. Yeah. So I guess they're really, which I guess is why peanuts are sort of you know, high caloric foods, they, they have a lot of fat packed in there, though right. you wouldn't know right. it by just squeezing one between your fingers, I guess. And you think about a pecan, we also do pecan oil, and you can really get oil on your fingers if you squish those or put it in a okay. brown bag, For you sure. see it. Um, the pecan is about 75% oil, so it has a atrocious wow. amount of oil in it. Sunflowers, on the other hand, are about 40%. So sunflower, pecan, how, which oils are you making now? Uh, those three, sunflower, mm-hmm. pecan, the green peanut, we do benny oil. We do pumpkin seed oil. I've done almond and walnut. I've done some hemp oil um, and flaxseed oil. Mm-hmm. And do all those oils have, I mean, it, it, oftentimes when people have sort of what seems like a novelty oil, they're like, I guess I'll put it on a salad. I mean, what, <laughs> what else can you do with some of these that you might not be able to do with what you buy? You know, I get that question all the time yeah. at farmer's market. What do I do with this mm-hmm. oil? And, you know, my instant response is anything you would do with any other oil. From butter substitute, salad dressings, uh, 
frying medium saute and finishing with it um, right down to using it for skin and hair care products. Wow. And so clearly it's going to be, it's more expensive, right? You're going to have to pay, consumers are going to have to pay a little bit for a, a better oil, right? So Well, you know, you go to the Cadillac dealer versus the Ford dealer, you know. Right, right, right. It's price difference. Wow. But do, does anyone buy enough of it to bathe them? <laughs> Good for I'm working on, right. that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so it seems like you always have something new. Is there anything new you're working on now? Uh, yeah, we got a, a couple of ideas that we're we're looking to try some new oils, um, some things that um, not typically thought of for that purpose, but they do have value. And we think the byproducts that we can make after the oil extraction are just as important for some of these things we have coming up. And I know you're in town. You're doing something with Stephen Satterfield, right? Yeah, He's, yeah. Uh, you're from Atlanta, I suppose. And um, I, I, you've gotten to work with a lot of the, the South's great chefs, right? Who would have ever <laughs> thought that? Yeah. And what an honor, you know, that right out of the gate, these guys who at the top of their game recognized we had a quality product and reached out. And, you know, I was pretty blind at the industry and how it works. So I'm very thankful that chefs like Stephen – we're willing to take their time and work with us and promote us and do things like he's doing tonight with us that are, you know, money can't buy those kind of. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask a little bit about how, how you got into the oil uh, oil business, I guess you could say, to, to begin with. I know that your farm goes way back uh, in your family, and so mm-hmm. you, you, you're you know, uh, from a family farm, but what were you growing on the farm before, and how did you sort of make that transition to doing the, the oils? Historically, commodity crops, cotton, peanuts, corn, uh, we have cows. During the 80s and early 90s, we raised hogs commercially, and that's what we were doing right up until about 2008 um, when the economy began to decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the year my daddy passed away, and as the transition from his generation into my brother and I's with the economy like it was in fuel prices so high, hey, well, maybe we could make fuel on the farm. There was a lot of talk of biofuels and alternative stuff, so I just... Every free minute I had late at night looking on the computer, learning, researching, how do you even make oil? And I learned about the refining process and the steps that, Mm -hmm. you know, turn that into that vegetable oil and stumbled across some people who said, you know, there's this technique called cold press. It's really big in Europe. People are more in tune to eating healthier there. And, you know, maybe that's something you should look into. So uh, that was a godsend that somebody opened my eyes to that, and we just open doors. Mm-hmm. I can't explain it. It's and and there's a history to this in the South, right? That people did not initially use olive oil, um, you know, 200 years ago or something, right? That this was would have been the the prevailing oil. Some of these, yes, some of these would have been very much in use in the everyday um, on the farms and whatnot. People would have had small presses. For that time period, have been cutting edge stuff. It's interesting that you, you sort of turn to to oils, sort of as other commodity crops sort of went away or, or as a downturn, because that's what happened in the South a century ago, which is how we got to peanut oil and cottonseed oil and all these oils to begin with. It was really farmers looking for a way to do something other than cotton, which at the time was not paying very well, and then the soil was getting decimated. So now it's like a century later, it's coming back around full circle, and you're going back to more of these food food oils. Exactly, and people doing it on a smaller scale. It's not industrial yeah. plants making these products. And I'm sure you guys are familiar with Dr. David Shields' books, mm-hmm. and uh, that really opened my eyes to some of the ways oil was used and the types of things uh, during that time period and how they fell out of practice as we got industrialized and they took waste products and were able to use them in a way that was profitable. 
Right. And I think you, you, you've you worked with David and, and Glenn Roberts, of course. They've had different experimental ideas, right, where they've asked you to do it this way and that way. That's and right, yep. The, and any of those experiments? Oh, yeah. We're, we're working on some things now with Anson Mills, and I'm really excited to partner with them because they're such a reputable company, and, and I, I like what they're doing. And the quality you get from them is unbeatable. I did see, I, I think, last year sometime, uh, New York Times, there was a write-up in New York Times, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it mentioned that, at the time that you were working with David Shields on the uh, Carolina African Runner Peanut, yes, have you made progress with that? Is that something? I have. That, that, yeah, I'm excited that sort of about that. Right um, for people who don't know, what what is the, the the Carolina African Runner Peanut, and how's it different than conventional peanuts? Carolina Runner Peanut was the ancestral peanut of the South. I don't know the full story. They found a few seed in a in a university. It was uh, bred by, I believe, Dr. Brian Ward at Clemson into enough to share with farmers. They divided it out with some of the growers in the region, and that was last year, last fall, they harvested the first crop. The grower I've been working with and talking with is uh, Nat Bradford, Mm -hmm. and uh, he, our last conversation was he was getting his peanut shelled in April, and I was on the top of his list to get some, so... So you're on Any the verge of, of getting, the, getting those. So this is, you know, he's got to get me some now. Yeah. That we that's, that's really exciting. Nat, Nat Bradford is uh, his family is behind the Bradford watermelon, which that's is right. this wonderful heirloom watermelon. And it, as, as this community sort of feeds each other here in Charleston, High Water Distilling has made a wonderful watermelon brandy. And the African runner peanut is one of these great, you know, uh, lost and found foods of the South, and it has been sitting had been sitting in some sort of seed bank, I suppose. They just didn't realize what they had. Because we have these places all over the Southeast, as we do all over the country, these kind of, you know, seed banks yep. and things where... And really, Caroline Gold was the same story. It exactly. Was, uh, Caroline Gold Rice was languishing in a seed bank for years and years and years. Yeah, and, so, I mean, that's an easy thing. People are hanging on to them. They don't know why, but yep. uh, it's, it's more and more people are figuring out figure out why. Well, Clay, if you could tell us a little bit about the, the milling process itself or the, the pressing process mm-hmm. itself. What does it look like and how do you actually you know, go from, uh, in the case of green peanuts, peanuts to uh, a bottle of oil? Well, there are many different types of presses from small, sit on a tabletop, you crank by hand uh, to large, very, very large industrial presses that take huge amounts of power and space and energy. Uh, I'm somewhere in, in between in there, and I have a smaller press. It It is, uh, you know, a couple hundred pounds, mm-hmm. um, but the technology is so advanced. It is able to do extract a lot of the oil at those low temperatures. Uh, it, it I use a screw press, and it screws the commodity into something harder than itself, and then that forces the oil out. And then can you do anything with the spent? peanuts after the oil is extracted or is it pretty much waste at that point? No, we, I mean, one of the things we strive to have is as little waste as possible. Mm-hmm. And when you're taking something that's expensive already and you're processing it some way, you know, into something even more expensive, you need to find an outlet for those byproducts. And one thing we've been able to do is get enough oil out that we can mill it into flour. Oh, wow. So you have a high protein, low carb, gluten-free flour that we make with the pecan, the peanut, Benny and sesame. Wow! Wait, and so you're mixing those together, sort of just like uh, uh, well, now we're keep we keep them se- we keep them separate, and uh, you know, I I was unaware of the issue with celiac disease, mm-hmm. and in a lot of things, I think it's a fad, but for people who are affected by it, it is a very serious issue. Because mm-hmm. my daughter, we 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 use some gluten free stuff with her, and most of it's pretty bland, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't have flavor. So when you have something like a pecan flour, I mean, you open up the bag, and if it wasn't so dry, you would just yeah. eat it, yeah. eat it <laughs> just like that. Which I think is just intriguing because now I want to go get a bunch of 
of peanut or pecan yeah, flour and start fantastic. making things making things with it. In terms of the oil itself, I know uh, that you break, it's green peanut oil. So is that so? Are you making them truly from just a the green peanut straight out of the ground, or what makes it green peanut oil? Okay, so that's a, a funny story. <laughs> is that um, again going back to Chef Stephen Satterfield? I think literally the first time he tried the oil, he was like, "Wow, this tastes green." This is green. This is fresh, like I'm eating it straight out of the field. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I was like, yeah, it tastes like a peanut, you know. <laughs> but, not, but I think most people associate peanuts with roasted peanuts or right. peanut butter, so, which is a we very different We had so flavor. many people calling after uh, word got out about the green peanut oil, and I just marketed it as peanut oil, and people said, no, I want green peanut oil. <laughs> and I was like, well, the, okay, I fix that. So <laughs> we put green on the labels. Label. And just to let people know, hey, there is something different about this yeah. uh, oil. It's not just your regular run of the mill, but you you have to have dry peanuts. You don't need the moisture content in Okay, there. so you don't have to have them fresh out of the ground like you would a boiled peanut. No, the, the great thing about uh, our situation is I live, of course, in the middle of peanut yep. country, and we have some very state-of-the-art large facilities that shell almost year-round. They can keep them in cold storage and when I need them, I can get really fresh shell peanuts mm-hmm. that, you know, they're, they may be some months old, but they've been in cold storage and they're coming out fresh. So, Clay, thank you so much. Really I appreciate, appreciate it, guys. you being thank here you. today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Well, next up, we're going to shift from oils to fats, uh, and that's actually fats with a Z, uh, as in Fats Cafe. And and Hannah, I know recently you published a piece about Fats Cafe, which is sort of a South Carolina-based uh, family, family casual, I guess you would call it, chain, and sort of the industry dynamics around that particular segment, which has been sort of declining lately. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Fats is um, one of many, you know, these family casual places, as you say, um, out of Greenville. I was first introduced to it um, when I was living in Asheville. I think they now have dozens and dozens of locations. Yeah, 45 is what yeah. I, I think I read on their website. Yeah, so 45 locations um, as as of this recording. Um they're, they're not faring well, so I, I can't promise what will be by the time you listen to this. But um, in 45 locations, I first knew the one in Asheville, um, which did tend to be patronized by fatter people, which I always thought was kind of funny. <laughs> but apparently their shtick is not about being fat or getting fat, even though they do serve these kind of like they call them beignets at the beginning of a meal. Um I call it a donut. It's yeah. uh, you know, sort is it of the, sweet or is it, it? It's it's somewhat sweet, and I think it comes with honey butter, so right. it's you know, it's fluffy and it's it's sweet. Um, but really, what their core concept was going back to the beginning um, was to be a southern restaurant, and it was interesting in speaking to them. Um, they had encouraged me to check out their new rebranding. Um, it was not at all dissimilar from the Sticky Fingers story, which we've discussed, mm-hmm. which was sort of just there had been a brand brand drift over time. Yeah, um, I think a chain gets to be a certain size and it starts adding new things to the menu right, and then and people have, sort of forget what exactly, it is. Exactly. You have new people coming in and you have, you know, different managers with different ideas. And so their approach to rebranding, or I think they re- would resist rebranding, their approach to um the return was that to stress everything Southern. Literally so, getting back to their Southern roots. Literally getting back to their Southern roots. So all the cocktails, you know, and went into mason jars and all of the appetizers went into skillets. Um, and <laughs> they they got rid of any, you know, any pop music that you know wasn't from beneath the Mason-Dixon line. I mean, they really, they decided to just Southern it up. And yep. 
And so they're not alone. I mean, this is one of the most struggling sectors in dining right now. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see if this makes a bit of difference. Yeah, no, just if you look around, I know Ruby, Ruby Tuesdays has gone through a lot of trouble. Yep. Places like Logan's Roadhouse, Bob Evans, all, all those those types, that sort of category, which I would just sort of call middle-of-the-road family dining. Some of them have a theme and concept. Others are just more... Like, right. like a Bob Evans, just come eat. You know, it's a it, bunch of food. Exactly. Know? Like, you know, you can get a club sandwich yeah. and a cob salad and a fried chicken and a meatloaf. And it's, those places really, I mean, they're all, all these places of that size and style are struggling. But it does seem like it's these sort of countryfied ones that are do, having even a harder time yeah. than some that you could pass off as fancy. Um, I feel like some of the steak and Italian places are staying above water. Um, but it, 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 they're all having a Time. And, and, and so speaking of, you know, kind of the the country um, gimmick, which isn't going over so well, um, last year Cracker Barrel had to come up with a whole new concept. Um, I don't know if you've been to one of these. I've not, but I think you had, you had mentioned that too. Is it a, a coffee kind of deal? What's the? Um, what's yeah, it's that? called Holler and Dash. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has the ampersand. Holler, that just sounds so 2000 and whatever we were in, the 2010s. <laughs> that's right, a very up to date name. Right, it was got perfect for the day it came Holler out. So and Dash. Holler and Dash is biscuit based, and it's for millennials who enjoy a good cup of coffee um, and a well made biscuit, I think is their. Is their spin on things? Um, so I guess the biscuit keeps it in the country camp. Uh, no one ever like think, don't think of good cups of coffee as necessarily being a country thing. <laughs> no, not necessarily. Although I imagine Cracker Barrel being situated on highway exits probably serves a heck of a lot of coffee. Oh, I'm sure they do. Yes. <laughs> they really yeah. do. So, but I, I they got to the point where their brand couldn't be turned around. I mean, they're gonna you know they have their loyal Cracker Barrel clientele, but to sell that you know the general store and the mm-hmm. The, you know, and the pork chops to sell that to a 31 year old was so difficult. They came up with Holler and Dash. Yeah, and I do think definitely if you look at the the demographics for those restaurants are aging. <laughs> They're now up, I think, into like the 50s is sort of their core Absolutely. Uh, core market. So you're trying to come in behind with a new generation of, of diners, I guess. Absolutely. And so, and they're, they're played by a number of problems. So it's not just, you know, concept and connecting with their audience. Um, but I did go to Fats Cafe since I'd been encouraged by Fats Cafe to do so. And it was just, it was as disastrous a dining <laughs> experience that I've been exposed to in a long time. And I think that's actually not not isolated to fats. I've, I've, I think that's another challenge. I think certain sticky fingers had a bit. A bit. It's not just that you got the concept drifted somehow. Mm-hmm. I think there's this operational challenge exactly. of keeping, especially as you get bigger and bigger, keeping that machine running well, hiring and training people and, and having consistency. That that can be as much of a downfall as having the wrong theme. Absolutely. And because they all move toward the space where they, and this is what had happened to Fast, they wanted to be all things to all people, yep. you know. And so now you have a menu that's too big. And even when you try and bring it back like Fats did, um, it, it's really difficult to be to be everything. Well, I think it's curious is that as they're now trying to get back to the Southern menu, they've launched their fish camp menu. Right. So they, from fish camp back to fish camp. They they have, but so they have, I mean, this is probably getting too nuanced about all, but they're (laughs) calling it Calabash, which is on the other side (laughs) of North Carolina. Um, And they've applied it to everything. So you, they call it Calabash chicken. And I think, you know, I mean, if they were Howler and Dash, they might have Calabash tofu. You know, I think they're they're just Calabash and Calabash. If those aren't familiar, Calabash (laughs) is a very specific style of seafood restaurants you find up around Calabash. North Carolina, right up on the North Carolina, South Carolina border on the coast there. And they were calabash shrimp was these small little, what you might call popcorn shrimp 
that they breaded and fried. And that was sort of, they, they had these seafood houses became this thing in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Absolutely. And the, actually, the idea of just using calabash generically is not that far off the mark because it is throughout the state of North Carolina, and that's true in Western North Carolina, you will go get calabash, yep. which, and it doesn't, you know, and I, I've spent just a little bit of time um, in Eastern North Carolina, and nobody's really sure what calabash, I mean, it's not like a certain, like, you know, if you add cayenne pepper, yep. you know, it's it's not one of those. Um I guess it's just I think a, it's just sort of like the kind of fried shrimp you would get down, down at, at yeah. Calabash. You know, it's <laughs> Feeling a, of being free. Yeah. I mean, so I, I suppose fats isn't all that far off. I just do think, you know, in their re- rebranding, if you will, or, or version, that they're going back to this sort of more pan-Southern thing. Which So you got Calabash shrimp in a fish camp, so you bring in the <laughs> – and then you can also get it on a po' boy, which is New Orleans, and then you've got, you know, pimento cheese and skillet everything. So it's just sort of like – Roll everything southern together and call it a southern southern restaurant. So we'll see how that 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 takes off. Should we get everybody away in it all on? I'm really a fan of fats. I've never eaten. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, just in general, it, it's it's one thing to say that the, the millennials won't eat there anymore, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I just don't think me and my fam my family and I we don't go even though we're family we don't go to those kind of family <laughs> casual places either. We no. we uh, it, it it really has drifted. It's not like I have some immediate opposition to any of those, those kind of places. They're, they're they're fine, but it's just not the kind of place, if I'm going to take the time to go out, I would seek out. I want something different. Right. And I think, I mean, we're very fortunate now that we have more options. Yep. You know, I remember my first newspaper job was in a little town in Mississippi. And so we went as a couple of us almost every night to Applebee's because that's where you yep. could go, you know? And if you're working late in your report, you're not going home to cook, you know? So, so it was very useful for that. But, you know, being in fats the other day, it's like, what is this and who is this for? You know, I mean, I think really you'd rather cook at home or get a pizza and be done with it. You know, the reason all these people were storming out of fats. And so there were two of the three tables. Um, they did storm out before the, before their bill had arrived, um, was because it took an hour to cook their food. You know, it's like, who's doing this? Yeah. And I still think of those, those kind of restaurants, not a specific one, but that category of the ones that like, especially on Friday night, you get the buzzer and you wait for over an hour for a table and then you wait and you wait and you wait. It's like, who really wants to yeah, wait the, that the, long the for table? A, there's no table client. It's just sticky and everything <laughs> just feels like incredibly industrial. Yeah. It's, it's really a shame. So we'll see. We're, we're yeah. New trappings. We'll see if that, if that uh, can turn the tide or if that's just we're going to be one of those kind of restaurants like the old you know, red and white Czech Italian uh, red sauce places that just is in the past. And Godspeed, someday, yes. Godspeed. <laughs> so let me ask that. Why, why do y'all think that as I've never thought about why I've never eaten a fest. Why, why do you think it's not like Waffle House? You know, why doesn't it have a cult following? Or Well, I think we've talked about that some before, which is that one thing is like it, it's not old enough to be yeah. charming, right? I okay. mean, Waffle House is something that has generations of history behind it. Um, I talked to Stephanie Barna, who did an article recently for the city paper about Hyman's oh, seafood yeah. here. Mm-hmm. And we we're talking about Hyman's, which is, uh, you know, if you've, if you've not been to Charleston, if you've been to Charleston, sure you know about it because you'll see the signs in the airport as soon as you step off the plane. And if you go down uh, Mar- Meeting Street, you'll see the line <laughs> down the sidewalk. But it's a it's an old seafood restaurant. It's been here since the 70s, probably. Is that, I think it dates back to, to then in an old warehouse. So it's got like old wooden floors and stuff like that. But it's just been a tourist destination for a long, long time. And then for locals, very controversial because it's oh, a tourist yeah. trap. You don't go there and, and all that kind of stuff. And so the question Stephanie was was trying to tackle was, well, is Hyman's a classic yet? And I sort of felt like well, it's not quite there yet. It's still in that that place that 
if it can keep doing what it's doing for another decade, it will be a classic. Right. All right. In the uh, same issue of the Post and Courier as your uh, your fats piece, uh, Hannah, our, our friend Stephanie Burt had a, a, a really good cover story on raw milk. And specifically, I think she, she got into it by talking about a, a local ice cream company here that was trying to make ice cream from raw milk and sort of had, had some challenges with it. Right. So Witch Cream had decided that their ice cream wouldn't um, meet their own expectations if they couldn't make it with raw milk. Um, Stephanie presented this to me a couple months ago. And I said, Stephanie, have at it. Because... Um, <laughs> Um, I will say at the outset, I'm very proud of this story because I believe I edited it in such a way that it is totally factual and objective. I have really strong feelings about raw milk. Um, I, I don't think they were in the story, but yep. I will say I wouldn't have been the one to write that story. So, um, yeah. Anyways, uh, <laughs> back to witch cream. They were able to use, um, it's interesting. We talked earlier on the episode with Clay about cold pressing. They are able to use a pasteurization method that uses less heat. For the same reason. So um, ice cream in South Carolina um, sold retail does need to undergo a certain amount of pasteurization. They wanted to keep it as close to the raw state as possible. Yeah. It was like 140 degrees or something like that. They have to get some, some level where it, it does kill at least some of the, the bacteria that, that's in that. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I was telling my son about this before coming down. He's like, well, what is raw milk? And I'd say, well, it's basically two, two things. Mm-hmm. It, one is compared to the supermarket milk. One is pasteurization. So they'll you heat it to kill any bacteria, other other organisms that might be in the milk. And the other is homogenization, which mm-hmm. is they basically I think just whip the Right. The they, heck you out know, of the it. cream rises yeah. to the top. They So if you buy raw happening. milk, it you it comes yeah. with a nice couple inches of cream on the top All right. and you know down who, below it. Who doesn't know, drink yes. raw milk for the most part? Drink Farmers. <laughs> <laughs> because farmers know there is a lot of junk in milk. Yeah. Like I said, make your own decision. You know what? I don't even know why we say that. There is science about this. Yeah. I, I, I actually would prefer, listen, if you're making a decision for a child or an elderly person for whom you are caring, I really hope you'll decide not to give that person raw milk. And I, I really hope that all the people I care about will not drink uh, raw milk. The science is incredible. Incredibly clear. There is no question about it. It, it. it is a dangerous substance. One of the reasons I feel so passionate about this is because I had, um, I got really sick after drinking raw milk. I had the after effects of a, they couldn't tell at that point if it was like salmonella or E. coli because they couldn't test the milk. Um, I was sick for three years. I cannot endorse that product. Can you definitely trace it to the raw milk? Nope. It- Nope, 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 I can't, I can't. So, I mean, in the name of science, I will tell you this also was during the outbreak of there was a bad eggs all over the country. It's possible that was the impetus for my illness. And that is the, the real trouble. But um, I was working on a feature about raw milk that week. Oh, and that I week drank so you, a lot you, of raw yeah, milk. Yeah, so we, connection. yeah my, uh, my young son, who is 11 now, but when he was really young, he got a um, salmonella mm-hmm. and was had to be hospitalized. Yep. It was real serious and, and really scary. But then you just have no idea where he got it from. That's you could get really, it from, from anywhere. Yeah. Um, and we didn't know. It's not his, his in his case, his diet is almost at least at that time was always the same. So it yeah. was like he was out drinking raw, raw milk or anything right. like that. Right. But he picked it up from somewhere. And it is a serious you know, if you ever had somebody go through a foodborne illness like that, it is uh not it's, not something you want to do. Again. Right. It's not just like your stomach hurts a little bit. I mean, yeah. we're talking about, as you say, hospitalization. It's this is a potential fatal diseases in some cases. Um, and as you say, you are not entirely protected from them just by not drinking raw milk. I mean, you're absolutely right. We've had, you know, 
lots of recalls for various meat products, various vegetables. I mean, you can find dangerous stuff in ice cream, depending who makes it. Um, so I, I don't mean to say that raw milk is the only, you know, food we should be concerned about, but the science is really clear on this. It does not do any of the things that advocates say it does. does I think I, th- I think that's probably worth um, digging into a little bit because you get sure. you get the two sides of, of the mm-hmm. story or the two the two sides. So, you know, the scientific community and any any health public yes, health our government, organizations, government, which make I understand for some people that makes it worse. Yeah, but that, yes, our, our government. Well, I think there is a, that, yeah. that plays into it. But but on that side, anybody just looking at it, sort of from a pure scientific pr- yeah. perspective, or saying look, it's a health risk. Mm-hmm. Um, there's listeria. There's all these other listeria. All these other things that that can be in, in in raw milk, and if you just pasteurize it, it takes care of all that problem. So pasteurize the milk. On the far end of the spectrum are sort of the what I call the raw milk health advocates, who not only say. They're not just saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with it. I like raw milk. They're saying it's actually this wonderful health benefit. And right. it, I'm not exactly even sure. I think it. They, I like, think they say it, it reduces, um, it, it, it strengthens your immunity, which I, you would, I can guess see how they came to that conclusion. But it, the, the idea is that it strengthens your immunity. It <laughs> lessens. doesn't kill you. <laughs> exactly. Um, it reduces asthma and allergies. Um, it generally has just a overall healthful effect. You know, I mean, you look younger, you feel younger. I mean, just about anything that's ever been claimed for any herb or tonic um, has been claimed for raw milk. Right. And and it's the, the, um, it's the like immune system boosting claims Mm -hmm. that are like the most specific that, that people make. And those are based on um, a handful of studies that suggested that perhaps people that um, consume raw milk have like a lower incidence of things like asthma the problem with those studies is that they look at people on farms yeah. yep. and not exactly. people that live in cities. And, you know, there, there's this ma- most important maximum in science is correlation is not causation. Correct. There is a very, very good reason to think that maybe the reason why farm kids or the reason why these kids have lower asthma is because they live on a farm. They live outdoors, not <laughs> away from exactly, pollution. Not, not because city. they're drinking raw milk. Right. And, yeah. and, and the studies, even the ones that they cite, are fairly limited and they're done in Europe. I right. mean, they're, they're, they are, you know. So when. But those are just so hard to control for, too, because to basically have it have any value, you got to have people who are essentially growing up in the exact same circumstances, eating the same things, doing the same thing, except the only difference is one drinks raw milk and the other doesn't. Otherwise, you've got. Or right. thousand I, other factors that could. I don't even know if it. you wanted to do a research trial at a you know respected research no, university. I don't, think let you do I don't even know if they let you give raw milk to children. I mean, I think it, it depends how much and. How well, yeah, I mean, the ethics of that get complicated. That's, You'd have to be in in a well. First of all, you have to be somewhere where it's legal. Right. Um. I mean, assuming that it's legal somewhere. I don't know. The ethics of it get really complicated because yeah, you can't give somebody something that is that you think is going to harm them. Exactly. Uh, so I guess the, the question then would be like, do you think it's going to harm them or not? Really, what you'd probably want to do is take a, like a, find a, some country where it's not legal and some country where it is legal and, you know, try to just tease that apart. So then you don't have to yeah. give it to somebody. But right. yeah, right, that, right, that, right. that would be hard to do. But but you can put raw milk under a microscope and see yeah. everything that's swimming around in it. And that is it's just not good stuff. So, so uh, listen, as I said, this is, this is my opinion, not the science, but my, I guess my opinion is it's not worth the risk. That's my opinion. It, it's a fact that it is a risk. And my opinion is it is not worth it. And I, I do wish that the people in the food community who support raw milk could at least acknowledge the science and say they've come to a different 
conclusion that it's a risk, but they think the taste is so good they're taking the risk. Well, anyhow. and this is where um, you know, this is where my 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 take comes in because mm-hmm. it's you know it, it is a risk. Uh, if you look at the statistics, um, at least the ones that Stephanie cited in, in her article, um, over twenty three years, it's something like twenty six hundred illnesses, three deaths. Okay. Really but, tiny numbers. Yeah, but so let's also a, remember how many states in which raw milk is illegal. Right. So we're not dealing with, I mean, you're right. That would be really impressive if we were talking about bacon, but we're talking about raw milk. But I think the larger larger thing, though, is that, you know, how it, it's always this risk thing. You know, is it, you know, I, I actually have some raw milk that I brought with me uh, to, today. Um, I've probably taken more of a, a risk driving it here in my car of, of dying than if I, I, I drink it. So it's not so much like it's poison. But then the question comes, what do you get for the risk that you take? Yeah, but I, the question I, I, then becomes this, the whole down to the, the flavor side of things. Mm-hmm. And then let's talk about raw milk cheeses for a minute, which is another – it's a different topic altogether. Right. And certainly I think half the artisanal cheeses uh, are now raw milk cheeses. Certainly a raw milk cheese is very different than a, a pasteurized right. one because a cheese by its very nature has got stuff in it <laughs> that exactly. turns it into, into cheese. Yep. Um, so I think you start now. You're you getting in the middle of okay. Well, should we not be able to have raw milk cheeses? Should we protect against that? But real question: When it comes to the flavor, is the flavor the fact that it's raw milk that is un, unpasteurized milk, or is it the other aspects of it, which is homogenized milk, where the milk comes from, which is instead of industrial mm-hmm. dairy, grass-raised farms on small farms? Could you get something that is like like the ice cream makers are doing um, at which at which cream? Could you use low pasteurized sort of low temperature pasteurized milk that gets you the value of the of the uh, uh, the flavor and and the and the fat content and everything else that's so wonderful about you know good you know grass fed milk without exposing yourself to like all the the bugs and things that might be in it? Yeah, I think there probably are compromises, you know. And I say that as someone who really loves flavor and I like to eat, you know. But when I'm traveling um, in, you know, in developing countries, for instance, if I know I'm traveling for a limited amount of time, I'm overly careful. Um, And that's, you know, that may not be, that's just because my body's not adjusted to where I am. And so for me, that's a risk. It's not the kind of risk maybe that raw milk is. It's just a risk that, you know, maybe I'll get up to the stomach. I don't take it. To me, I... It doesn't mean I don't appreciate flavor, but I think there are other things in life, such as living, that I also value. <laughs> I just sort of feel like ultimately we're having we're arguing over the wrong thing, which is I don't think it's should we pasteurize or not pasteurize your milk. Uh, I think it's more like should you just go buy the ultra pasteurized stuff, or should you go seek out good cream to, I, from a I good do creamery? Think, I do think it's an important debate because I don't think the food world is completely cut off from science or it should not be. And I I think the fact that in so many other aspects of our lives right now, people are making claims which are not scientific, which are dangerous. I'd rather that not be part of our our That's what I'm saying. I'm saying I don't, that's why I'm saying I don't think we should be arguing about whether we should have raw milk. But when it comes down to, okay, if I'm making ice cream or butter or cheese, this is really good stuff. Well, maybe it's like, okay, well, let's, let's, Go figure out where we can get that flavor from without you know exposing ourselves to all the the bacteria that, sure. in in the world and in, in the process. Well, like yeah. one one of the amusing things that, about this, that, so it's like there's this very lo- loud community of of raw milk advocates. Hilariously, in my opinion, there's a very loud community of people that think humans should drink zero milk. That's right. And and they have basically mirror opposite arguments. <laughs> the the people that think raw milk is great 
point out all the stuff that's in raw milk and the people that think milk is evil point to all that stuff and say that's why milk is evil. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> right. This does remind me a while back. It's sort of faded now, but I remember when all of a sudden antibacterial soap just was <laughs> boom everywhere on the market. And there were, there's all these numbers thrown around and things, but all by marketers. And then if you trace it back, it all went back to like some study that someone did where they used antibacterial hand soap in some market in Central America somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it basically wasn't a blind comparison of bacterial soap versus antibacterial soap. It's basically the comparison of washing your hands versus not washing your hands. And that study got picked up and turned into this whole market. And you had this big debate at some point where people were sort of freaked out by the antibacterial soap. You had a lot of people saying, there's no evidence that it does anything. There's no point in buying it. You might just, just wash your hands with soap. But then you have others who would say, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't kill bacteria. It's, it's useless. But on the other hand, it may actually be terrible. It may actually be killing us all because it's going to kill all the good bacteria. and all the bad bacteria. So, Well, you can't really have it both ways. It can't be like it's like with the milk. It, it's either, it can't be the worst thing you can drink or the best thing you can drink. It's probably somewhere in the middle, which is. Mm-hmm. Hannah, I think that that's an interesting topic. And maybe we should explore this in a future episode, the, the whole connection between science and, and food. But. You know, like it, it's 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 just interesting how often we see things like this popping up in in the food world because it, it feels like, you know, we mentioned gluten a few minutes ago. That you know that that that's a very similar thing where there's like a lot of pseudoscience wrapped up around food, and and there's a lot of people that want to, you know, pick one thing is like this is the food that's going to cure all disease. This is the one food. You know, like right now, people are very, very down on sugar. And, and you know, sugar is bad, but is sugar killing every single person? Probably not. Right. It used to be fat. It, it's, yeah, it, it it does seem like people have just very simplistic. Yeah, I think it's part of the spirit of our times, which is at a certain point, we everyone who, who loves, a lot of people who love good food looked around and said, wow, a, a century of industrialized agriculture has really driven a lot of the flavor out. Mm-hmm. And so we get... Um, the green peanut oil that's actually cold pressed, sort of the old style. You're like, wow, this wonderful flavor. We, we, we lost all that as they went to different varieties and different ways of doing it. So it's one thing to turn back a little bit and say, okay, we need to maybe slow down a little bit and, and take some time and, and, and focus on flavor for food. It's another thing to go the other way and say, well, then science is evil and we have to then turn our backs on it all together and go back to some primitive time. That to me seems a, a misreading the... <laughs> The, the, where we needed right. need I mean, I, I do think this is one of the things that's interesting about food is it really is this intersection of art and science. You know, nobody eats their favorite painting. You know, it doesn't <laughs> become part of your body. And so you can't ignore it. You know, you can say that, oh, it's just about how it tastes and how it feels. But science really is part of it. And there are answers. It's not just like, oh, I really believe in broccoli. Well, we, we actually know what's in broccoli, you know. So it's it's. It, it's interesting. Well, stuff. yeah, but my mother still has like a, a unreasonable faith in the oh, curative power of broccoli. Everybody, every, and this isn't our. I mean, this isn't just our generation. Although, as you say, Emery, things will shift. You know, yes to sugar, no to sugar. You know, um, but if you read the history of almost any ingredient, will say, well, this was planted in abundance <laughs> by you know this group because they believed it. You know, it increases your sexual powers or keeps you alive. I mean, people have always attributed magic to, to what they eat. My, my favorite thing now is that after the, all the, everyone, uh, you know, high fructose current corn syrup made mm-hmm. its way into everything and then everybody started getting really freaked out by it. Now, cane, 
cane sugar mm. is advertised on labels as if it's the health ingredient. You know, so all of a sudden, they add the yeah. sugar, sugar. Made with so. pure 100% cane sugar. Oh, right, good. Right, right, right. Uh, no, I mean, people, people, and I among them have no understanding of basic chemistry, <laughs> you know. And so, I mean, and this is what explained the whole MSG issue, you know. I mean, it's just. MSG is something you eat, it, you know, yeah. it can it occur naturally. naturally, right? And so and the, all of the, you know, excitement and hubbub about how MSG is going to hurt us all, it's just, go back to chemistry. <laughs> so, so I guess we've landed the, on the raw milk topic, not, not. So are you going to drink your raw milk? I'll drink it. I, I again. It, I, just I bring it out. I'd like, to see, of, I'd like of, to see you um, drink it. Well, I, I, I probability. Did, I, I'm not. I, I'm not. You know. I'm not too worried. Anything's going to happen. Yeah, to you. I did want to ask because one of the things we haven't really talked about. Like, okay, so we we've demolished the idea that there are health benefits to it, but are there flavor? Benefits well, that's what. To that's it? why I'm asking. I've, well, that's I've never, what they, I've never drunk it. That's what and they. Uh, I don't that's intend what they, to, but they, they test is going to be. So I did stop off. And I got just a regular old thing of vitamin D, homogenized pasteurized milk, and then uh, raw milk. One thing you can notice. Is the color is a? It's definitely a creamier yellow. Right, let me, let me yellow. smell it. Yeah, it's it's much darker. It is darker. Now we'll say I'm not a raw milk consumer in the sense that I buy it. I've, I think I've bought one or two jugs before, just because more because I was just curious what it tasted like. Okay, it does have a different smell. I don't think milk has a very good smell to begin with. <laughs> well, milk is just milk when it's the oh, pasteurized smell. Right, vitamin D. But that there's so many factors, aroma. and that's the grass, you know, that, and that's what you right. don't really get. I'm curious to smell the regular milk. Here's the regular. Oh, you put it. Okay. I'll this give is... you. This is, I wasn't originally going to make you guys do the blind taste test, but I won't expose you to. I won't make you risk your life. So this is just regular milk. That is regular vitamin D milk from the grocery store. This is a game I play every morning. <laughs> is this milk turn? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, and, and this is definitely different aroma to it like you say it does have a barnyardy smell yeah for, for sure. sure i'm the enjoying it tastes like milk yeah I mean, I, i'm <laughs> enjoying my cup of board in milk <laughs> it's, really, it's really it's really good so tell us how that raw milk tastes different well uh, the board in milk is creamy it's smooth rich i like it a little sweet almost could be a little sweet it, it's it it goes back it's almost to the the same as the aroma mm -hmm. you get that grassiness in the in in the um the raw milk mm -hmm. that you don't get in the the the, the, the plain old board milk is just it's white it's almost you know I won't say chalky but it's got that sort of thick texture on the tongue. I hear what you're saying, but it definitely has flavor. You wouldn't mistake this for water. It's, no, no, it's not definitely bland. not. It is it's, vitamin D yeah. whole milk. It's not skim milk. You know, so yeah. I try to make them at least similar. Yeah, because uh, hmm. yeah, there's no comparison between uh, skim milk and whole milk. Right. No, and that is scientific. Yeah, mm -hmm. I would say the biggest difference is the flavor, uh, mm -hmm. and, and I, I, but I don't know. Is this because it's raw milk? Uh, and I'm going to take try this out when I go home. I'm going to I'm going to do a little pasteurization oh, in my house mm -hmm. and see later because I, I suspect it might just be the fact that and these are Celeste Albers uh, cows, which are grown right here in Johns Island. I'm eat out in the pasture all day long, mm -hmm. so it may well just be the diet that that they have and not the. Pasteurization. So we'll try okay. a little experiment. Report I'll, I'll report back, back on, on the difference if I'm if I'm still around. If you're alive, yeah. probably not. But <laughs> I'm trusting rubber. my my intestinal fortitude to, to get me through. I didn't know you were also a poster. I'm so happy to find someone else who's. Yeah. Well, I mean, like like Pasteur, he's 
Like <laughs> he knew his stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like it's like him and Semmelweis are like the two biologists. Like they're the first biologists every biologist yeah. knows about. Yeah, Semmelweis invented hand washing. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, yeah. for surgery, before surgery. Yeah. Pasteur is he's like the rock star. He like vaccinations, amazing pasteurization, like, and all these things are like huge public health. It saved millions of lives, literally millions. I mean, yeah, it, it, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think maybe the raw milk thing is is kind of pretty similar to what we're seeing, like with vac- vaccines, yeah. is, is that people get used to everything being safe, and exactly. then they start to wonder, like, well, why, why are we doing all this <laughs> stuff? It's annoying. I and, think and because no, nobody alive today remembers right. the time before germ theory when right. It's a little hard. I think I think it's harder with foods because if you just look back at World War One, more people died from from influenza than yeah. from the fighting. Right. It's just uh, you could just see that, and you know what the person died. Well, from. a lot yeah. of people were dying from food poisoning. But I but mean, the, it, food was much harder because it was. This is the era of the food and drug, pure it, food and drug act. Yeah. It, there was so much. Everything was it contaminated. Wasn't contaminated. I mean, they were putting gold. Yeah, or silver it wasn't in their just food. that I mean, that they weren't pasteurizing the milk. Yeah. It was that they were putting poisons Which in it. Still yeah, happens doing all in kinds China. Of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a, mm-hmm. a whole mess. Yeah. And they were, you know, where it used to be probably not as big of a deal because the milk came from the cow down the road. Now you had national milk companies shipping the stuff all over the country, and Lord knows what's happening to it in, in transit. So it's just right. it's hard to tease those out. And mm-hmm. you're right; I mean, we forget now that we don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah, sure. You know? Oh, yeah, and I, I don't. I definitely don't mean that. Like, th- there's a whole constellation of things that have improved. It's not just pasteurization. Oh no, right. it's, it's, like, it's just one of the many, right. many things. Right. Um, vaccines definitely right in that category. Yeah, and, and well, and just the FDA, like just yeah. the. Purity and standardization of of food has has made a big difference, and yeah. and just clean water, yes. even clean water, huge, 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 huge thing, and and good huge. whiskey. You would not believe <laughs> what people used to put in whiskey before mm-hmm. uh, the passage of the, the yeah the, right. the movement they put to dead clean horses up, in there. They put pepper, they put yeah. arsenic, they put all sorts of things because yeah. they would water it down, and in order to give it a kick, would put anything in there that would yep. give it a kick, like acid and things that you would not want to consume, um, and actually. Oddly enough, the movement to for pure whiskey proceeded it was one of the precursors to the oh, pure food. Pure movement. food, we had, okay. yeah. Our whiskey got better before our milk did. That's hmm. interesting. I think we should revisit all of this at some point and do yeah. like a food myths. We will. Yeah, that'd be that, a, good that's one. a good one. Why don't we do that? About the dye from raw milk over here. <laughs> and that's all for for Robert Moss. And that's all for this edition of The Widow. We recorded today's episode in the Oily Podcasting Studios at the Post and Courier Building in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. If you like what you're hearing on The Widow, please help other listeners find us too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you download your podcasts and like us or leave a rating. And be sure to visit our new show page at winnowpodcast.com for more details and links about the places and people we discuss on each show. The Winnow is a production of The Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was the germ-free J. Emery Parker. Our theme music is by the Bluestone Ramblers. Until next time, I'm Robert Moss. I'm Hannah Raskin. Get out there and eat.